0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
2: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates, one of the two, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also uh, check out our SoundCloud, uh, where you can hear... uh, uh, many of our, uh, our previously recorded interviews uh, with uh, on Moment of Truth with our previous guests, as well as uh, check out our, uh, our, our website. You can listen online there as well at elmntfm.ca. I'd like to welcome uh, our first guest to the show. It is a pleasure to have with us Constantine Gridaris. He is a PhD candidate in English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University. He's also the author of What It Takes to Record a Black Person's Death. It's uh, in the conversation. Uh, Constantine, uh, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, David. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, although uh, the topic on which you are writing is certainly one of a very serious nature. And uh, I have to admit that, uh, you know, it's not. Uh, in reading over the article, these are things that are familiar and certainly the, the words I can't breathe are not the first time we have heard them with, uh, with George Floyd. Uh, you bring up a, a, a direct incident where this happened some, some years ago as well.
3: Right. Um, yeah, it's not the first time. And unfortunately I don't think it will be the last time, um, the words I can't breathe uh, really signals uh, a complete um, ignorance on behalf of the police to recognize or to at least acknowledge how um, life or black life is equal to that of white life. It's a, it's a complete ignorance um, to, to see the importance and the value of black life as something that is equal uh, and equally important as, as white life, as certainly as, as uh, the lives of other police officers.
2: Mm. Yeah, w- when when we hear that, and we hear and we see, uh, as as you point out, uh, this is not only the, the first time we've heard those words. It's not only the first time we've had this kind of thing captured on a mobile device that was then made went went viral.
3: Yeah, it's it's not. So this is kind of what the article is really kind of focusing about. So the words "I can't breathe" and and the, and the subsequent footage that's been captured. Um, going from Eric Garner all the way to um, George Floyd, um, is really a, a way of kind of reliving and repeating that trauma um, that mostly black people and, and, and in the States, as, as a matter of fact, Latino people as well here in Canada, black people and indigenous people have really kind of um, suffered at the hands of police officers. Um, the, this kind of institutional and systemic racism uh, has been ignored for years, and so what? The, what this article is really trying to question is whether or not "I Can't Breathe" and this moment that we have with George Floyd will kind of lead to to any kind of systemic changes. Now we're seeing tons of protests. We're seeing changes made uh, at, on the surface, at least. But what has to happen here is for those words to really uh, matter, there has to be um, there have to be systemic changes that follows so that we don't see these repeated moments um, happen, uh, reoccur and have to be relived on time again through social media platforms and by
2: witnesses in, uh, who, who bear witness to these things in, in real life. And yet even as as we are talking about this uh, and even since uh, the, the very tragic death of George Floyd, there have been other events happening since then as well. Uh, not exactly the same, but as you point out, uh, both uh, black and indigenous people have been uh, have been in the news again uh, under under uh, unfortunate circumstances where their lives have been taken.
3: Yeah, you're 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 spot on there, and um, I mean, the, there's a long list of these incidences in, in the U.S. But what's important here, as as Canadians in Canada, we have to recognize that there's a long list of. Um, police violence that's been levied against um, Black and Indigenous communities for years now, and so it's it's the onus kind of is is on us here to recognize that this is not something that's happening down south across the border. This is happening within our own borders, not only now but has been happening for hundreds of years mm. now. Mm. Right, this idea of of trauma of police-based or race-based um, trauma is not something that began with George Floyd or Eric Garner. Right, right. We can see this trauma. Dating all the way back to the residential school system, to the mm. reserve pass. We're talking here about 1885, mm. um, where um, Indigenous people were kind of surveilled and policed by a uh, police, and, and 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 were allowed only to to leave the to reserve uh, with the kind of validation
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, or the approval of the police. The residential school system, which caused so much psychological, physical, emotional trauma for. F- uh, with children that were ripped away from their homes and families and placed in these um, schools far away from their from their homes and what many have called cultural genocide. Mm. Right? This is not a trauma that simply occurs uh, at one time or is a one-off. This is trauma that is intergenerational, right? It's repeated. It's passed down to succeeding generations in various ways. And so this is not a trauma that is, you know, th- this is something that's kind of it's been brought to the forefront now with George Floyd and with these multiple incidents. But the question is we have seen so many of these incidents occur, right? We can go back to the early 90s with uh, Rodney King in the US. Mm. Why is it that we're only starting to recognize this sort of trauma, this race based police violence now? Why haven't we been able to recognize this violence, this trauma that has been, has been occurring for? over a hundred years in Canada
2: yeah and I, I think that you know one of the things that your article points out is that it seems to be we don't either we don't want to recognize or we don't mm-hmm. choose to to uh, w- want to believe that that this is this is this representation of what we're seeing in one in one person's life and death uh, is is systemic we, we, we don't want right. to think that it's so it's a one-off we want to think that it's a one-off and then we see it a couple more times we go there's a few bad apples it can't be like that throughout this, mm-hmm. you know but but we see this again and again and and it it, it obviously uh, and and we hear it we hear people talking about it we know mm-hmm. that it's there we choose to I don't know you know people are busy and it's i guess about the they call it the silent majority
3: right yeah i I think here the 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 onus really falls on um on 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 white people to kind of um at least admit and at the very least acknowledge mm. how long this trauma i mean has existed right we look at the very institution of policing mm. and I've written about this elsewhere the this the institution of policing. The formal institution of policing really evolved out of informal kind of slave patrols in the American South in the mid to late eighteen hundreds. Wow. Right, you had these informal patrols, who were mostly consisted of kind of white volunteers, who were basically patrolling slave plant, um, plantations to make sure that slaves were staying uh, within the confines of the plantation. Mm. Um, you know, up until nineteen sixty five in the South, in 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 the states, you had the police, the formal police institution was enforcing Jim Crow laws, right? These segregationist, racist laws were being enforced up until 1965.
2: Wow.
3: So we have to really question how is it people are so concerned about why, um, how the police kind of, uh, you know, there's this kind of backlash, right? Where pe- people are calling for defunding the policing institution, mm-hmm. for the abolition of, of, of the police, and people are taking up kind of just so distraught this idea that we cannot function without the police. But we have to recognize, as white as as, as a white person myself, that the institution of policing was created to kind of violate, to oppress, to to suppress um, people of color. It's very kind of origins and is indicative of something that's meant to harm people of color. Mm. And um. this is not again something that's just uh, strictly um, confined to the U.S. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, this has happened in in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Canadian slave owners who who bought and sold black people here in Canada. Right. Right. Um, kind of just reduced their their existences here in Canada to property that could simply be exchanged uh, in the market. Right. There were laws in Canada that prohibited black people from. Accessing certain public spaces, you know, we couldn't go to restaurants, they couldn't stay at hotels, they couldn't go to uh, public swimming pools or public parks, and this is up until the mid 1900s. Mm. So, although this might seem like uh, a long time ago for some people, it was really just such a such a close time to us that we kind of failed to realize how how um, this systemic racism in Canada has it, has just hasn't really left us right we we right. may have kind of eliminated it in terms of um certain legal um policies mm. but culturally systemically institutionally mm. it's 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 here
2: yeah, this was pointed out, I believe, uh, by a number of people and articles that have been talking about. You know, what does that actually mean to be? You know, systemic. What does that? What does that actually mean? And and I think that uh, the the Prime Minister addressed this in, in one of his talks as well about how it's it's right in the language of of these these organizations and and the government and and things. It's it's just the the way the words have been chosen and used in there that make it uh, a system that is systemic with, with racism.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, look, when we consider how how I mean, Indigenous and Black people were, were viewed here in Canada, I mean, I'll stop talking about the U.S., but here in Canada, where, you know, um, Blackness, for example, was just associated and, and equated with some kind of, like, you know, pathological criminality. Right? Mm. In other words, Black people were seen and treated by, the, by white settlers as though criminality was inherently race-based, mm. right? something that would, can only be committed by a black person, an indigenous person, another person of color. Right. And so when that, when that kind of stigma is inherently attached to, to people of color and, and communities, um, of course the, the, the system which is governed and run by white people is going to be created and, and, and altered in a way in which benefits white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think these are the changes that people are, and protesters now are are, are looking to make. Right? Right. We need systemic changes in in policies and law that really um, kind of address these these deep seated issues. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, a couple of the other things that your article looks to um, is is also bearing witness to these things. Uh, mm-hmm. The people that are there when these events take place, we tend to forget those people sometimes because we see the video. We're we're so uh, struck, and horrified, and and so uh, you know uh, impacted by those things ourselves. We tend to forget about the people that took those and and uh, we're we're physically there watching this at the same time. Now, what's really interesting. From your article, are the two things that you point out about that? One is is the trauma that those people themselves uh, go through because they are there watching this, um, and how that translates into other viewers that are seeing it uh, through through watching the video. But also, uh, and I'd like to to touch on both these things, or all three of them, if we can. The last one being that the people that have gone ahead and and posted these. Videos become targets themselves. Right. Yeah. Which Which part of that do you want to start with?
3: Um, I guess we'll start with with, with kind of bearing witness uh, in the in kind of in that firsthand eyewitness account. No. Um, I mean, Darnella Fraser uh, is not the first person, and, and what I want to kind of really point out here is that bearing trauma uh, in terms of this kind of firsthand account, this direct trauma is something that um, Black people, uh, Latino people, Indigenous people have been forced to kind of take on, right? Their truth claims Mm. for years now have been ignored, Mm. right? We we have not been able to recognize the truth about race-based police violence that has existed in these communities for so many years. And so this idea that now um, Black people have to, or people of color have to start um, recording Mm. this brutal police violence mm. um, is something that th- that has that has been done in order to kind of substantiate right to back up their their truth claims mm-hmm. that people want to see uh, this visual footage as proof uh, and, and kind of to corroborate their claims that in fact police violence is indeed race-based mm. Now, trauma is something that affects us all, right? Trauma is, in that sense, raceless. Mm. Anybody can be affected by trauma. Um, but what we have to recognize when it comes to police violence and police brutality, that the trauma is indeed race-based, mm. right? It disproportionately affects Black people and, and Indigenous people. Mm. This is, um, uh, you know, this is the, the truth. Yeah, no one can argue against that. Um, I think then shifting over to... Um, kind of the, the labor that has to go into not only bearing witness directly, right? The trauma that this person has to take on um, by recording something on their phones, uh, but the uh, then the kind of subsequent indirect trauma that people who view these videos um, also experience. Mm-hmm. We kind of tend to kind of ignore that kind of widespread trauma that occurs as a result of simply viewing the video. Mm-hmm. People kind of tend to want to make a, a differentiation between... Witnessing something with your own eyes and then witnessing something um, through a screen, whether it's a computer screen or a mobile phone. Um, but I guess what, what I'm trying to argue in the article is that, you know, while that trauma can be different, um, experienced in different ways, it still constitutes a form of trauma. Mm. Uh, we saw this um, with the attacks on 9-11, for example, mm. where, mo- where thousands of people actually um, um, suffered from various forms of uh, PTSD mm. um, from simply witnessing um, the footage of the of the airline attacks mm. on television, on their mobile phones, and this kind of replaying of it uh, only served to kind of worsen mm. um, some of these conditions. Mm-hmm. And so we have the same problem happening here, right? Um, and again, the trauma, the, this, this race-based trauma is something that directly impacts uh, communities of color who have long been affected by police violence, mm-hmm. right? Because they can see themselves directly right. in the shoes of Eric Garner right. or George Floyd. Yes.
2: You
3: know, somebody like myself, I can empathize, I can sympathize with that position, but I don't have um, the fear of seeing myself in, in George Floyd's um, mm-hmm. position, mm-hmm. Right. So, th- again, this systemic and cultural kind of um, upbringing uh, and background kind of really makes this form of trauma um, race-based. Right. And in terms of, I think this is uh, an interesting point here that uh, we don't really recognize the consequences of of what it takes to kind of record something um, like we saw with George Floyd. Right. So Darnella Fraser has encountered multiple forms of harassment. Right. Um, to be fair, she's also encountered... Um, support online right mm, there's a gofundme mm-hmm. campaign which right. has been created for her yep. to help her through her uh, some of the issues that she's now experiencing um but again what does that say about about the larger kind of um population right what does that say about our fellow citizens right. who kind of refuse to acknowledge the trauma that goes into right. um doing this kind of i don't want to call it work because it's not work but yeah um it's almost a form of just an existence, right? Your your, mm. your phone's always handy because you're afraid that something's going to happen. So it's kind of us living this a uh, life of anxiety and fear mm. um, that something like this is going to happen again and again. And clearly, it has. Right. And I haven't and I haven't read too much about. Um, what kind of the consequences uh, and the kind of the lasting effects that this might have on individuals like Tarnella Frazier? But that'd be something that might be interesting to really pursue in the future.
2: Right. Um, I'm just going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. We will be right back with more right after this.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
2: My guest on Moment of Truth is Constantine Gudaris, and he is a Ph.D. candidate in English and Cultural Studies at McMaster Universities. And uh, he's the author of What It Takes to Record a Black Person's Death. It's a conversation. We're discussing these the ramifications of that, as well as uh, recent events that have uh, brought attention to uh, the Black Lives Matter, as well as the death uh, of George Floyd uh, that went viral on video and, of course, uh, spurred many, many uh, protests uh, worldwide. Now, uh, Constantine brings attention to that this is not, of course, the first time that we have seen a, a, a video uh, of this nature, uh, at, and and uh, a black person died at the hands of police that said they can't breathe. Uh, he points back to July seventeenth of two thousand and four with Eric Garner's murder, and also, what's interesting though is is that uh, Constantine is is bringing attention to. The larger issue of this as well, because there is trauma, not only uh, that it creates from just watching that video, but the person that, for instance, takes that video and puts that video online, the person that is there, physically there watching this. And then the subsequent um, fallout from that, and there has been fallout uh, for the, the person who videotaped uh, Eric Garner's murder, uh, Ramsey Orta. Uh, and uh, she, I understand, uh, was actually been arrested several times and, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe is, is still in jail.
3: Yeah, absolutely. He's still in prison. Um, again, the, the, the circumstances surrounding Ordo's current circumstances are, are, are blurry at best. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that um, following the incident, following the, um, his incident of uh, recording the, uh, the death of, of Eric Garner, um, in the span of two years, he was arrested three times, mm. right? Um, and these uh, arrests um, consist of a range of, of, of charges, which are not really relevant. But what's what's important here, and again, this is um, that activists kind of maintain here that m- many of these arrests or all of these arrests are really kind of uh, a, a consequence of uh, being set up by the NYPD mm. for filming the video. And So mm-hmm. here we have a different... Um, a different form of, of trauma, right? That that's that kind of runs contrary to Darnel Frazier's mm. uh, Fre- narrative, who has been harassed and bullied online for not intervening, right? Um, as if it was her responsibility to yeah. to intervene in something that should have never occurred in the first place, right? Um, so, Mr. Orta here has been in in prison for. Uh, since then um and even though he's he was really the catalyst Mm -hmm. for the for the i can't breathe kind of movement that that is really followed right yeah so um again like the the circumstances are not entirely clear activists maintain that um he's been set up in various ways um there isn't really any way of, of of confirming uh whether or not this is true or not um but again um it just it just kind of goes to show uh, that that bearing witness to these to these incidents are aren't, don't come uh, with absolute with with no expense, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the uh, consequences are severe and heavy, whether they're they're psychological or physical or, or emotional.
2: Yeah, and, and as you say, uh, Darnella, who who, who videotaped uh, George Floyd, and and yes, it, she was criticized for, for not jumping in, but she's only a minor yet herself and and uh, to to actually uh, jump in and start uh, taking on a, a, a police officer who obviously has no trouble, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing this to one person uh, and there were other officers around, uh, probably wouldn't go well anyway.
3: Absolutely not. I mean, we're talking here about um, life and death. This is not simply... A, any kind of individual intervening uh, in, in a, in a yeah. kind of um, incident, for example, like a traffic stop, which might have more uh, mm. kind of mute, which be more, which might be more muted in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, its circumstances. We're mm. talking about potentially a, another black woman mm. trying to intervene mm-hmm. or, or obstruct, as the police would say, in, a, right. in, an, in another person, another black person's arrest. Right. We're talking about life and death. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no end to it. To say how. And again, this is all just kind of um, hypothesized. Uh, what, yep. what would have happened to Darnella had she actually intervened? A Seventeen-year-old right. young woman.
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
3: Um, there's no, you know, how do we even begin to kind of fathom the 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 consequences that would have that would have followed had this been the case? Right? There's no onus on Darnella to to have intervened. There's no onus for anybody to really intervene. Yeah. Um, the onus is on the police, right? Not to kind of initiate circumstances in which. Somebody has to be yeah. called on to intervene. The, the, the it's not Darnella's fault or anyone else's fault. Yeah. It's the fault of the police, who again, you had a police officer and not to kind of kind of reiterate this this, the, this narrative, but who was kneeling on George Floyd's head for I think it was over nine minutes.
2: Yeah, about eight and a half minutes or so, I think.
3: All right. There's Yeah. There's there there are there are, there are no circumstances and. Uh, under which that is uh, remotely uh, acceptable.
2: Yeah, he's on his stomach, he's handcuffed, laying on his stomach. What else do you need to do to this man to to, uh, take him into custody? You certainly don't need to put the full weight of your body on on his back and chest so that he can't breathe. I don't see what purpose that serves at all, except for exactly what it seems to have done.
3: Absolutely, and and one of the scariest um, parts of the video, which I've only watched a couple of times because it's 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 very disturbing to mm. watch, mm. is not only the fact that we see the life escaping uh, a man's body, um, is it's the look on the officers on the white officer's face mm. who's kneeling yeah. on George Floyd's neck, right? Kind of a stoic, mm. almost emotionless expression. Right. That to me is really suggestive of something far more than yeah. than a single act of police. Yeah. Um, violence. Yes. Right? It's just, this is something that his face kind of expresses to me the the kind of the devaluing right. of black life that is so kind of common
2: across many police uh, policing uh, institutions around the world. Mm-hmm. Constantine, we only have a couple of minutes left. What what are you hoping that your your article will will do? What were you hoping and thinking when you were writing this?
3: Well. Uh, Again, writing an article like this is 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 is, is very complicated. Right? My position in this place is, as a, as a white as a white man writing on on issues of mm. of um, black life is, is again very kind of um, troublesome, and I acknowledge that in many ways. Mm. Um, but I, my my point here is that the the, the trauma that goes into um, not only um, living these experiences, but also subsequently viewing them is something that we have to kind of think about it, in, the, in the long term. Mm. Uh, ultimately, I, you know, I would wish, I would hope that we, we don't have to be exposed to these images and by that I mean not have to kind of, um, there have to be systemic changes in order for us to not go through, to not live through these experiences. Uh, my, my my point is really that, there, again, to reiterate, there have to be these systemic changes, these institutional changes um, that really um, fix this issue of trauma, right? That, that we're going to be experiencing trauma as long as the uh, institution of policing remains the same. And unless there are su- substantial changes, uh, whether it's defunding the defending the police and abolishing the police <laughs> as a whole, um, something has to be done on a systemic level. Um, because as we have seen time and time again, these instances will keep on occurring. We only have to look um, here, just a few just a few uh, days ago, right? Mm. We had the death of a sixty two year old Muslim man who was a uh, a person in crisis. Mm. Mm. Police uh, were called in. Um, uh, his name is Ejiz Ahmed Chowdhury on June twentieth. Mm. Peel police doing a wellness check. The man was shot and killed inside his own home. Um, Chantal Moore, June 4th, mm-hmm. indigenous woman in New Brunswick, mm-hmm. police doing a wellness check
2: mm-hmm.
3: again, shot and killed, right? There was no attempt to use non-lethal force. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're having far too many incidents occur with people in crisis, for example, in which police are being called and and, and the response seems to be one of violence.
2: Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's great. We'll have to leave it there. We appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on to the show and and share your thoughts and share the article with us and and explain more about that uh, and get this uh, information out there. I I certainly uh, also want to point out that I I, I like how you, you took the... I guess the point larger to bring us into to make us aware of the trauma that those that are videotaping these things that are there doing this that get that and and get that information out for other people to see uh, is is also traumatizing. And they're there watching this, and and those ongoing effects that uh, uh, can also affect their lives after that, uh, because they could be harassed, etc., etc. So, uh, Constantine Gras, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and we thank you very much for joining us on Moment of Truth today.
3: Likewise, David. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, you bet. That's Konstantin Gidares. He's a PhD candidate and in the English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University. He's the author of What It Takes to Record a Black Person's Death, and that was written in the conversation. Don't go away, because we're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth right after this.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
2: Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in those coordinates, one of the two, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome our next two guests to the show. Uh, one has been on the program before, but he's back. And uh, he's here with uh, someone else associated with what we're going to be talking about today. Fraser Thompson, an eco-justice lawyer, is with us. And Shelby Gagnon, she's a 23-year-old applicant from Thunder Bay. And they're here to talk about uh, climate change as well as uh, taking on the, the Ontario government to try and get them to reinforce, I guess, or uh, to not weaken uh, laws and, and, uh, around uh, climate change. So uh, they're here. They, uh, I guess the, the Ontario government was trying to uh, uh, quash this and put an end to it. Um, but uh, Fraser, I guess that's, uh, there's, it has been now moving forward, I understand.
0: So uh, to give, as your listeners may may remember, we, we brought this case originally in uh, November 2019. And the case is our clients are taking Premier Ford to court effectively for weakening Ontario's twenty thirty target, mm. 2030 climate change target and violating Ontario's charter rights to life, liberty and security of the person. At a time when the science is telling us we need to be doing more about climate change, we yes. need to be cutting our emissions <clears throat> faster the ford right. government has thrown climate action in this province into reverse and our clients are we're going to court to get the province back on track right shortly after the case was filed the government brought what is called a, a motion to strike and that's the the uh, the
2: motion that you were referring to mhm and they're they're they brought that motion to strike because they're saying what that uh, the courts are not the place to to really try and answer this or i mean what are the what are the you know what are the reasons
0: so uh, a motion to strike is effectively it's a it's a procedural tactic it's mm-hmm. an attempt by a party in litigation to stop a case from going forward uh and and in our case the government brought this uh brought this motion to strike to uh, as this tactic to try uh and what would effectively avoid Uh, a hearing with all of the evidence on climate change. Now, the Ford government knows that it can't argue with the scientific consensus on the urgent need to take action on climate change. So it brought this procedural motion to try and avoid a hearing. Uh, It's been arguing effectively that, you know, the courts aren't the best place to deal with this. Um, it, it brought a number of other arguments. But as we know from around the world, with more and more youth standing up and more and more courts looking at the science of climate change and realizing that over the past 30 years, governments have been delaying and delaying and delaying and, delaying and not taking this issue seriously. Mm-hmm. Courts are agreeing with youth. Courts are saying that governments aren't doing enough. And if they're not willing to do it, the courts are going to order that. And mm-hmm. so um, we believe that that our clients are going to bring a compelling case uh, and we're confident in that and, and we believe and are hopeful that uh, we will get a hearing on the full merits of this case uh, and uh, that we hope we can, we can get to that soon because unfortunately this has led to some delay and, and as we know on climate change, delay is something that we cannot afford.
2: Hmm. And those arguments uh, for the motion, they're going to be heard on July 13th of this year.
0: That's correct. Uh, and uh, we're, we're hopeful that that's going ahead with, with the courts these days, just given the, yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Um, there is some uncertainty, but right. uh, whether that's an in-person hearing or a virtual hearing, we're, we're hopeful that's going to go forward on the 13th.
2: Yeah, we've been hearing something about uh, how the courts are, are dealing or, or, or hoping to be dealing with, with uh, cases. Uh, Shelby, you... You're here representing one of the seven uh, youth that have brought this forward, and welcome to the program. It's it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you guys, thank you,
2: uh, Shelby. Can you tell uh, us a little bit about why why the seven of you got together and decided to do this?
1: Um, yeah. Um, so I, I work a lot in my community. I'm an artist and support worker, um, and I work. Um, an organization called the Indigenous Food Circle. And for me, it's, um, you know, reclaiming that food sovereignty, uh, reclaiming the land and protecting and trying to heal, um, you know, ourselves as community with the land. And so that was just a big, um, a big influence in my life and influence of why I wanted to be involved in this case was to fight for, you know, future generations, to fight for the protection and health of the land and the people that and and the animals and plants that call the bush their home mm-hmm. so that was a big uh, reason why i wanted to be involved with this case and mm-hmm. to fight in you know in the courts and fight in different ways than maybe how i've been uh, fighting for the for land rights and um you know sovereignty in my community mm-hmm. so i thought it was a better way to you know really actually try to make a change is through the courts
2: mm-hmm. and now did the seven of you know each other, or did you all sort of come at this individually and find each other, maybe online or something? How did that all happen?
1: Uh, yeah, I was I was asked by um, Maddie, so she's another mm-hmm. um, person involved in this case. Mm-hmm. So I went to high school with her, and I just saw her once at the university. And, you know, I, I do work a lot in community um, and in the Indigenous community a lot. So she just asked me, and I, yeah, there's no hesitation i said definitely yes let's go so that's how i was involved with this case but everybody yeah just kind of kind of organically came together
2: Hmm. um now do you have uh do you have uh have you, have you are you studying law or anything like that
1: Uh, no i was i went to school for visual arts okay and um you know a lot of my artwork involves the land and natural materials so i um you know, I, I just found that connection. And for me, I see that everything is, um, you know, related and connected in some way. So mm. uh, we just, I I, yeah, I just wanted to be involved with the case.
2: So can you just... Can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Because I I, I imagine you guys had some great discussions as you were thinking about, uh, you know, sort of pursuing this. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, quickly some of that? Uh, There must have been a lot of excitement around that uh, table discussing this amongst you.
1: Yeah, totally. We all all met up in Toronto for the case, and we kind of met each other virtually, Mm -hmm. but it was awesome to, you know, meet, finally the phase is that we we were all kind of talking and um to to really get to know each other and and learn those different perspectives of why we wanted to be involved with this case first off and how we we could fight with you know the help of eco justice and and the lawyers but i think it was just that we're we're all young you know and we all want the best for you know the future of the health of the planet and um you know, coming together was super inspiring, and in hearing all the stories of how others are trying to help their community. And um, you know, it's it's the young people who are really going to, you know, I think make a change and. It gave me some inspiration and hope that you know we we are doing this together and we need to we need to fight together to actually make some change.
2: Hmm. So once you decided you got together, you you, you were going to take some action. Um, did uh, did justice come to to mind right away? How did you guys approach this to to sort of find someone that would represent you?
1: Well, the case was already. Um, Kind of in the works when I when I joined the team,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I was kind of asked to have um, as an Indigenous person to have more Indigenous representation in this case. Mm. Uh, so that's how I was involved with this case. Mm-hmm. But maybe Fraser could kind of go into how it was um, created. Sure. Yeah.
0: So so at EcoJustice we we do uh, public what we call public interest environmental law and and. In, in a lot of people's opinion, in my opinion, uh, climate change presents one of the most fundamental threats to the public interest, as insofar as it, it relates to environmental law. So we've been we've been working on climate litigation for a long time, and and had thought about bringing a case such as this for a while. Uh, that led to some conversations with some of the youth that have been involved in the Fridays for Future movement. Mm. So this is a movement that was inspired by. Uh, Greta Thunberg in mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. and there's a number of youth that are involved in the case that were uh, that were deeply involved in the Fridays for Future movement. So that led to some conversations there, and um, and really the, it, the relationships evolved out of that to uh, to what a case like would look like in Ontario, and uh, and then ultimately to everybody coming together as as Shelby was describing.
2: Mm. So uh, you, you say that the, the uh, you know the the motion to strike is a tactic, uh, and you're saying that that from other cases you've seen where youth are bringing things forward, uh, the courts are supporting the youth um, and making governments uh, take action if they're not willing to do so. With with the government, the Ontario government saying that they, they can't deny the, the evidence that they're seeing in in terms of of climate change. Why? And and given that fact that there is success with other cases, why why do you think they're continuing to pursue this line of action?
0: Well, it's it's hard to speculate why they're doing this. What I can say is that in a lot of cases like this, uh, sometimes the longer it takes to get a matter to an actual hearing the the more delay, the better it is for the government. And, mm. and un- an unfortunate aspect of this is that this motion to strike will delay the hearing. We had hoped to, mm. to get this done as quickly as possible. As, as I said, climate change is, is an emergency. It's, it's been declared an emergency by governments all around the world. Um, we need to be treating this like an emergency. So unfortunately it's going to lead to some delay. That may be one of the, one of the motivating factors. Um, but ultimately, um, the the relief that that our clients are seeking is that the government take this issue seriously, that it implement a science based emissions target, that Ontario do its fair share in reducing carbon pollution, mm. and they may not want to do that. They may know that the science is against them, uh, and so, um, like I said, it's hard it's hard to speculate. But mm. um, we're we're confident that uh, that this motion. Um, we're confident in our case on this motion and hopefully we'll, we'll get onto the merits of the case because that's what, that's what I think we all, we all are hoping
2: for. You said it could delay and postpone and slow the process down. What kind of a timeline might we be talking about in that regard? Do you know?
0: It's, it's hard to say exactly, particularly given the uncertainty that's been in the court system and, and potential backlogs. Mm. Um, Usually these kinds of motions can be resolved uh, anywhere between two and four months, maybe six months. Mm. Um, it's it's really hard to say. But our hope is that the judge recognizes that this is a, a serious issue, that it's a time-sensitive issue, that a decision is um, rendered uh, in a timely manner, and that we can get on bringing forward the evidence, bringing forward... The perspective of the youth on this, the perspective yeah. of of scientists,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and that we can put these facts before the court and uh, and put them in the pub- on the public record, and make sure that um, we have our best chance in in uh, seeking the relief that we're we're hoping to get in this case.
2: Mm. Is this a, a tactic that you had predicted that the government would probably uh, try to? Uh, uh, put, uh, put through when you were, you know, looking at this.
0: It it's something that we had we had certainly anticipated. Whether or not they were actually going to do it is another thing. We right. brought a case last year. Uh, Ecojustice brought a case against the Ford government for not consulting with Ontarians before it it uh, changed its climate change targets before mm. it right. rescinded the previous mm-hmm. legislation. The Ontario government brought a motion to strike in that case. We successfully argued against it, uh, and so it's it's something that's happened before. Um, but but at the end of the day, uh, we think our arguments. Uh, we have confidence in our case and and we're hopeful that we'll we'll get around this motion and on to the hearing
2: mm. Now, uh, Shelby with the seven of you involved with this and uh, and Fraser and and Ecojustice, as you're waiting to to hear about what might happen with this process mm-hmm. um, the seven of you obviously were were engaged and serious enough to take this and move it forward Um and obviously, I'm sure that that Fraser would have explained to you that this is going to be a long process, probably and drawn out over a period of time. Um, I, I guess the other thing I'm, I'm wondering about is, at this point in time, what uh, what is ecojustice doing, uh, and how much involved are the are the applicants at this point in time uh, going through this this first process of the the you know the um, the the. the the strike uh, idea and and what will happen, and, and how much involvement will the applicants have moving forward?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so we all get together through video conference and mm-hmm. just um, talk and meet up. That's when uh, you know, Fraser and Danielle, the lawyers, um, explain to us what, what has happened, um, explain this motion to strike. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, like court language is just so foreign. Sure. So it's nice to have, um, you know, the lawyers really explain what, what this means for our case and where we need to go to move forward. Mm. And so my role is, um, you know, just going over and reviewing and, you know, um, uh, accepting what has been written by the lawyers. Mm. Um, so that's kind of my involvement in this case and how we're keeping all up to date with it. But yeah, we just support each other through you know social media right now and um, just trying to stay connected. Mm. And I think that's all we could really do right now and and just kind of um, you know hope for the best and hope that this argument really kind of kind of goes through the court. Mm.
2: So Fraser, what what will be re- required at this point in time? What will happen when you when you finally get together? If you're fortunate enough to do so on July 13th to to look at the uh, the arguments on the motion to strike, uh, what will that look like?
0: So if if it's a, an in person hearing, which is probably unlikely at this stage, it will be held at at, at the courts. Uh, if it's a virtual hearing, um, it will be held virtually, and and we're we're hopeful that. Our clients will be able to attend that uh,
2: mm.
0: virtually as well. The judge will hear the argument. The written argument has already been filed, but the judge will hear oral argument and uh, and then uh, come to a decision uh, at some point, in the, likely at some point after the hearing. Uh, if we're successful, what will then happen is we'll be, begin filing our evidence. The government will begin filing its evidence, and we can move forward to a hearing uh, on the merits of this case which we're, we're hopeful we can we can get to
2: okay. Uh, just going to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two uh, 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 digits and then uh, ELMNTFM. And you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guests on uh, Element FM are Shelby Gagnon and uh, Fraser Thompson. Uh, Fraser is a lawyer with EcoJustice and uh, Shelby is a 23-year-old applicant uh, taking the uh, the Ontario government uh, Ford government uh, to court um, and uh, we're talking about the ramifications of uh, one of the things coming up uh, on July 13th and that is the government's desire to uh, file a motion to strike. Now uh, uh, Fraser just said if they're successful they can move forward uh, Fraser if that is not a success at that point in time does that does that just bring it to a halt or is there you know can you can you counter w- with that
0: if if the motion is on or if the motion is successful for the government mm. and the case is struck we'll certainly be be reviewing any decision that the court renders and and talking about it with our clients and and certainly the option of an appeal of that decision is open and one that we will take take very seriously mm-hmm. uh we think that these issues are of fundamental importance, that the legal theory is is a sound one, that there's there's really, it's hard to imagine any greater threat to life, liberty, and security of the person of our clients and of, of young Ontarians, really of all Ontarians in the 21st century that's greater than climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we believe, and, and our clients believe strongly, uh, that this case Deserves to be heard, and so we'll, we'll certainly consider an appeal.
2: Right, and um, if you are successful, you're going to start putting these things forward. Uh, then uh, you start to do that. What might that look like as it as it rolls out over time, and and at what point then, uh, Shelby? Will Will you and the other applicants uh, obviously you'll be involved in terms of listening and 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 be kept up to speed uh, from the lawyers. Uh, but is there a requirement for for the seven of you to uh, per- perhaps uh, give testimony at some point in time?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think so. In in the future, um, I, I definitely would speak on this case and speak on you know um, for for youth. Um, I think it's super important. But um, yeah, Fraser, if if you could, is would there be?
0: For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, We the the type of application that we have brought allows the clients, the applicants, to put evidence forward on the basis of an affidavit. So the hearing Mm -hmm. itself won't be kind of what you conventionally think of as a as a court case, right? uh, Where people are providing live evidence. That evidence that Shelby and and the six other applicants will be providing the story they'll be telling to the court will will go in. Through uh, written evidence, um, but uh, so and that will that will also be be something uh, a very important aspect of this case because we really believe that the voice of youth is
2: is is critical
0: and integral
2: to this case. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if there is at all a, a, I guess maybe a, somewhat of a silver lining to. Uh, what we are currently going through with covid 19 um uh, shelby uh, you know the thing is that this uh this unfortunate pandemic has Uh, shut down much of the world in terms of transportation, in terms of business, and the world seems to be breathing a little bit easier these days. We've Mm -hmm. all heard about the air clearing up. We've heard about the waterways uh, uh, clearing up. Uh, You know, uh, I heard about a story in... uh, Florence, I think it was, uh, or or one, uh, uh, where the waterways have, have been actually so clear they can actually see to the bottom of of uh, their uh, you know in, in the in the city, and I guess that haven't hasn't happened in, and I don't know how long. So um, the 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 world is breathing uh, at least for a little while, a little bit easier, and is, and has a, a chance to uh, take a breath, and um, and I guess that is. If, like I say, if at all, uh, a, a a slight, uh, you know, a, a silver lining that that the the climate is able to uh, to to have at this point in time. Obviously, it's a short-term thing, and things were, but there is, you know, perhaps. Do you think that this plays in the favor of of what you're doing moving forward with this case, uh, to show that? Uh, you know, even on, on just that, that premise of what things have happened physically to see the air clean up, the, the, the waterways, uh, the animals come out and walk around the cities and start to explore more. Uh, do you think the, the, this all is, is uh, a benefit for you with the case?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time on the land, mm. um, you know, helping my well-being, my holistic health, my mental health, In these recent months, um, connecting with the land is one of the ways I've dealt with the uncertainty of this pandemic. Mm. And I think a lot of people are realizing that I see so many people, especially here in Thunder Bay in the north, really just going outside and adventuring, going for hikes, going camping. And also, a lot of people are gardening right now Mm -hmm. in community. I work for the Indigenous Food Circle. So we're, we're, we're getting soil to even more northern communities, getting, you know, Uh, lumber for race beds and I think we're all really at this time connecting with the land really seeing that it's so there's just so much beauty within the land and I think it is um, really helping people in their kind of mental state too with coping with you know everything that's happening in this world so I definitely think that you know it is kind of a silver lining in a way that you know you're it's helping the, helping the land, but it's also helping people, you mm. know, and finding that connection again.
2: Y- yeah, for sure it's helping people. And, and uh, it, it maybe, uh, you know, we've all heard about this new normal that we might be going back to. You know, I remember when this pandemic started, there was a lot of people saying, do we really want to go back to what we were doing? Do we really want to go back to the way it was? Um, I'm, I'm hoping you heard the same thing, Fraser. Maybe you heard that as well. So perhaps coming out of this, there may be a change uh, on a global scale that will help, uh, will help uh, put Mother Earth a little more in the forefront as we, as we look to uh, reestablish whatever that normal might be as we move into the future.
0: Yeah, I, I hope so, and I think Shelby said it best. It's it's given people a chance to to reconnect, and and I think as well, it's it's shown the power of government. A lot of the times, when mm. it comes to climate change, it the government seems to say, "Well, you know, there's nothing <laughs> we can do about it," mm. <laughs> and, and people tend to agree with it. And, right. and we've seen the power of government, the power of society as a whole. When we listen to science, when we right. listen to scientific warning and mm. say, "If we don't do this, very very bad things will happen," and we as a society and, and government uh, taking a lead have done what is necessary and we've prevented countless deaths. Right. Now, with climate change, it's it's a it's a <laughs> far more slower moving mm-hmm. uh, catastrophe. But but the science is clear: we have to take action. And uh, science has set out exactly what that is. So hopefully that gives people a bit of perspective and in, in, into what what is possible, how, how we can shift how our society mm. uh, works, and uh, and ultimately do what's necessary to prevent the climate catastrophe.
2: Right. Sounds like you've got a couple of good points there you might be able to bring into the argument uh, as you move forward there, just about the science (laughs) and a government's action. But, you know, the other thing that you said, it has been a slow-moving process up to this point for climate change, but we all know it's gaining speed and it's moving faster and faster, and there's a point where there is no no. Chance for returning, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think youth uh, are saying, you know, this is our future. This is the, the next seven generations, is what the Indigenous people have always talked about. Well, uh, we we it's time, it's time to start taking that and bringing it forward, and and uh, bringing that uh, the importance of that because we're we're running out of time with all of this. It's been a real pleasure speaking with both of you on the show, and we really thank you for taking the time uh, for doing so to take part and share this. And we certainly wish you all the best uh, moving forward uh, with this case. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, well, miigwech for, for taking the time to join us.
1: Miigwech, it's been great. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. Miigwech, and, thanks. Oh, you bet. Uh, and, uh, As I say, uh, that's going to be coming up, uh, your case is coming up on July the 13th. So we wish you all the best with that. And please keep us informed so that we know what's happening. Uh, We'd love to uh, stay on top of this and have you back on so we know, uh, uh, know and inform other people about this as well.
0: Will do, for sure, and appreciate you having us
2: back. You betcha. They are the voices of Fraser Thompson, eco-justice lawyer, as well as Shelby Gagnon, and she's a 23-year-old applicant involved with the case. And that is your show here today on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time right here on Moment of Truth.
0: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.